Congress treks back to Washington this week with only a few legislative days left before the end of the fiscal year. They'll have to deal with government funding, among other things. Here with the Outlook, Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, let's begin with what's their schedule precisely for the House and the Senate? Well, the Senate's back today and they'll be in for the next several weeks. The House doesn't return for floor business until next week. This is officially a committee work week, which means we may see some hearings and some events like that, but we won't see actual floor votes this week in the House. Then we have a very packed September with a few days off uh, toward the end for the Jewish holidays, which will be starting. And then we head into October where business will largely quiet down on the House side and there may be some business for a couple of weeks in the Senate. But um, the other date that's circled on the calendar, you mentioned September 30th, the end of the fiscal year, is of course November 8th, which is the elections, which is one of the reasons we'll see fewer days in business for the next several weeks so that people can go home and campaign and try to win their jobs back for next year. Safe to say that they will not actually do detailed work on the 12 standard spending bills, but more of their time will be spent simply on the scope and shape of the continuing resolution? That will be the big issue, is how long to fund the government in this continuing resolution and what to attach, as this is probably the last big bill moving before the election, after all the larger pieces of legislation that they passed, obviously, earlier this year. But this bill, um, whatever shape it takes, will be a pretty high-profile one and could be an attractive vehicle for a lot of things that they want to get through, both on the administration side authorities and money that they need, and then in Congress if there's some priorities they want to tack on. Right, because the administration has proposed this 4.6% pay raise for federal employees. If Congress is silent on that, it happens. And so they could either approve it by saying also 4.6%, maybe raise it, or maybe lower it, depending on who prevails. Right, that's correct. Um, but that may also be tabled for later in the year when they get to the larger appropriations bills, because as you notice, as you noted, there are 12 normal appropriations bills that they would work on or try to pass. Um, the House has passed six of the 12, and the others have come out of committee. On the Senate side, we've seen 12 bills released by Senate Democrats, although those weren't ever voted on in any formal fashion. Um, but we still don't know yet what a final appropriations package will look like, in part because there really haven't been the bicameral, bipartisan agreements you need to get moving toward that. So everything from federal pay to you know riders that normally have been in the bill and may not be going forward, all that is still very much up in the air because they just haven't made progress. And in getting the yes vote they wanted from Joe Manchin, the Democrats, that is Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, said that when they came back, which is now, that they would get around to the permitting reform. The idea is that because of local, state, and to a great degree, federal permitting requirements for large infrastructure projects, part of the problem is how long it takes to get permits. Is that something that could be attached to the CR bill or something like that? That has been discussed. I'm not sure that everyone is quite sold on that idea yet. And this is something that will require a different type of support necessarily than and what you had in that reconciliation deal that Joe Manchin agreed to. That was very much a party line bill, only Democratic votes in both chambers. And in the 50-50 Senate, that meant all 50 members of that caucus plus Kamala Harris, the vice president. So this idea may not pass muster with all the Democrats, but it may attract some support from Republicans. So we'll have to see what that final permitting deal looks like, um, what's in it, um, what kind of support it can pick up. Because in the House, if you need every Democrat, then that permitting language may not be attractive. If you're trying to pick up Republican votes, which you need in the Senate, where um, it takes 60 votes to get things done and you need 10 Republicans to side with you when you craft this continuing resolution, then it could um, you know, be attractive there. So that's definitely a dynamic we'll be watching. Can Joe Manchin get these 
side deals signed into law after his success in getting the big bill um, passed through Congress and onto the president's desk back in August. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And by the way, what's the status of the National Defense Authorization Act? They are proud of always getting that done, but that's more a calendar than a fiscal issue for Congress. For the most part, most of those authorities run throughout the year. And, you know, if they needed to extend something imminently in the continuing resolution, they do so. But the House has passed its version of the bill. The Senate Armed Services Committee has sent out its version to the floor and it's available for action. Not clear if we'll see that right away in September, if that's something that will happen later in the year. Um, That six-decade-plus streak that they have of signing that into law, I don't think that's at risk of being broken. I don't think any armed services chairman on any side of the House or Senate wants to be the one who breaks that streak. So I would see maybe more behind-the-scenes action, potentially some votes in the Senate, but that will really be a goal, I think, in that lame-duck post-election session to get the final version together and over to President Biden by the end of the year. And the camp followers that look at what is in each year's NDAA for federal procurement and defense procurement policy. There's not a whole lot there this year. This seems to be more of a quiet NDAA from that standpoint. Right. I mean, most of the fight this year so far has been about funding and how much to authorize in this bill. Both chambers came in well above what President Biden wanted, which will mean more money, obviously, for federal contractors and for agencies, because if if they fund the programs through the appropriations bill at the level in the authorization bill, there would obviously be more money there. But there's always fights over writers and what to attach to it. I think we'll probably see some discussion still about what to do in Guantanamo Bay and places like that. That's not a settled matter between the two bills. But for the most part, like you say, it's it's not the biggest. It's not it's not one of the contracting reform years, maybe some small changes here and there to some programs. What about judicial picks? And are, are there any key nominations that we might see from the Senate as it gets back to work? It's kind of late in the first term for people to maybe want to continue to be nominated. But nevertheless, you got to have people in place. Well, this is one where I think the election dynamic is coming into play. Democrats have their majority right now and they want to use it. They want to get through as many of the president's picks as they can. So the votes that they scheduled for this comeback week already are two judicial nominations. I think the Seventh Circuit and the Sixth Circuit. So they'll process those. They'll be looking for more picks. The president keeps nominating judges and um, Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin's doing his best to process those. There are still some administration positions open. Um, I think Kathy Ann Harris is still waiting for her chairmanship vote to, to be approved. She was obviously confirmed to the board. And then there's ambassador positions and other departmental slots that have come open and need to be filled. So this is going to be a busy part of the Senate's agenda, churning through these nominations at the committee and floor level to try and fill the administration and get as many people as they can in case the Democrats do lose their majority later this year and would have to make arrangements between a Democratic president and a Republican Senate. And beyond the time when they leave for the break in late September and then they come back in early October, they're still have a couple of months in the calendar year. Does anything happen then in a election year like this, or is it going to be pretty much whatever they get done in this next couple of weeks is going to be basically it for the year? except for that NDAA vote. I think that the lame duck could be busy. There are things that both parties may want to get done. There's people who would like to cement their legacies before they leave, retiring chairman and retiring members who might try to make arrangements. Um, There's still interest in doing some things on same-sex marriage in light of the Supreme Court ruling on abortion. There's, um, you know, there's a long shot push to do something about cannabis legalization or decriminalization, or at least maybe the part about banking. So there are a lot of priorities that people have. Um, 
there, there's a look still at changing the Electoral College Act from 1887 to update it in light of what happened in 2021. So a lot of members have a lot of things on their to-do list. Sometimes after the election, it's a little easier, things are a little quieter, and there's a rush to get things done before they wrap up for the year. So that could be an actual fertile period for things to get done. Right. The Electoral College was a bipartisan type of gambit in the first place. Right. Right. And um, that's, I think, Sue Collins and, again, Joe Manchin have their bill over bills, I believe it is, over in the Senate. There's a House push to write something there and to see what they can do. It may actually be easier, some people think, to get that done after the election when the pressure of the midterms is off, um, but try to get it done before this Congress wraps up by January 3rd of next year. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at podcast. Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. 
I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, 
right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right? To up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 